Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Vanessa Larco, who's a partner at NEA. She's been there since 2016 and focuses on enterprise SaaS and consumer investing. She's passionate about well-designed products and services that enable people to be more productive and fulfilled at work and at home. She also has experience at Box, where she was the director of product management and has a ton of experience overall with product, which is something we dive into in this episode, talking all about products and investing in products, how to build products, all that and more. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Various Search, a boutique legal recruiting firm that uses a bespoke approach to fill legal department roles from general counsel to paralegal. They have a particular focus on startups and growing tech companies. This focus allows them to provide individualized in-depth attention to both their clients and their searches. They focus solely on placing in-house candidates, which allows them to give their clients a bespoke experience in filling their legal needs. Their matchmaking approach ensures that clients are paired with candidates who not only have great credentials, but who are also a good cultural fit for a growing company. You can learn more about Various Search at VariousSearch.com. That's V-A-R-I-A Search.com. Again, VariousSearch.com. Without further ado, here is Vanessa Larco, partner at NEA. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and a lot to discuss with you having the operator experience and being in VC then in that last number of years as well. I'm curious as to how you ended up in VC in the first place. Always have to ask that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never expected to go into venture. I'll start there. I was not part (laughs) of my... Uh, career goals, life plan, you name it. Um, I went to school for computer science at Georgia Tech, um, was introduced to the product management role when I was looking at internships and immediately thought, this is my calling. This is like everything I love (laughs) about computer science and technology and working in teams. Like this role was was made for me and it didn't disappoint. Um, I... I was a product person my entire career before joining Venture, and I loved it. I love building products. I love seeing people's reactions when they use the software that you've built with your teams. I love building teams. So it was never, I never thought to myself, like, well, I'll just do product for a little while and then do something else. For me, it was, I'm going to do product forever. Um, <laughs> so so this, um, this change, detour, whatever it is, into Venture, uh, it was really unexpected. It caught all of us, me, my family, my friends, my mentors, a bit by surprise. But, um, you know, I'd been doing product for such a long time and I'd worked at big companies, small companies, had my own startup, worked in consumer, worked in enterprise, worked on platforms, worked on apps. And I wanted to keep learning. I wanted to keep doing different things. And as I looked around at the opportunities around the table for me, um, nothing really stood out as new. And that that kind of freaked me out. And um, I had a good friend at NEA who'd been a general partner here for a very long time. And, and he started floating the idea about venture. Um, and like half jokingly, half not. <laughs> and, and over time, somehow 
And I, I ended up meeting more and more of the NEA team. And, and when the opportunity came up, um, I decided to give it a shot. But it was it was very unexpected is how I would frame it. <laughs> There's a lot to dive into with that. And also, obviously, with your time here at NEA, I want to go back to what you mentioned, though, with, with on the product side of things, a ver- wide variety of experience with product. One of the things you said, though, and I know from research is you obviously founded your own company. Tell me about that experience and how that came to be. I'm curious. Yeah. So I, um, early in my career, I was at Microsoft and, you know, it was a great place to learn how to be a PM back in the day. Uh, Very structured, lots of processes. You get exposure to a lot of things. Um, Taught me a lot of discipline. And then, uh, but the thing that was frustrating to me was, you know, you could work your butt off and deliver results and then still like the promotions or, or upward mobility or ability to, to take on more scope is just limited by politics and how long you've been there <laughs> and like all this other stuff that I didn't think seemed fair. Yeah. And I would hear about this like promised land of Silicon Valley. And and you have to realize this is like years before Facebook went public. Right. And so I'm like, wow, look at this guy, Mark Zuckerberg. He's only like a few years older than me. He's CEO of this big company. Like it doesn't matter how old you are. I'm going to move to Silicon Valley because I want to work somewhere that's like a pure meritocracy. It's not, you know, age-based or experience-based or whatnot. Um, so for me, that sparked the, I'm going to go work at a startup, figure out how these things function, how this ecosystem works, and then I'm going to do my own startup. And that was the goal, um, which is is not in itself a bad goal, but <laughs> you shouldn't just start a company because you want to start a company. You need to have an idea that you're really passionate about. And my buddies and I, when we left Playdom to start our own company, we did not have an idea we were passionate about. <laughs> we were just passionate about being entrepreneurs. And we you know, got office space, got a name for our company, got incorporated, did all this stuff. And then we just like sat in a room and looked at each other and we're like, well, well what are we going to, what are we going to do? <laughs> and that is like, gosh, not the way to go about it. Um, what ended up happening is we settled on like, the lowest common denominator on the one idea that we all could agree on, but it wasn't an idea that we were all like crazy passionate about. Um, and that takes its toll in so many ways because then like, what's the vision of the company and and what's the North star and, and what keeps you going when, when questions come up or when there's doubts or when you should, when there's questions around pivoting and like all of those things, if, if you're not all super aligned and there's not a huge driving force between, beyond uh, the initial idea, like the vision that what what you're trying to accomplish, like it becomes very difficult every day to keep going. Um, We ended up getting Aqua hired and it was fine, but man, I learned so much (laughs) from that experience. (laughs) That's exactly why I wanted to bring that up because for founders listening, having the experience as founding your own company and going through that yourself, then as a VC, you had that knowledge to be able to, to tell other founders about that and understanding like what they can look for, things they can avoid, potentially all that as well. And in the experience, I know you, you said you aqua hired and you were at Box then eventually. You did some pretty interesting things at Box with what you're working on there. Give us like a high level view of some of the things you you were able to work on at Box where people aren't familiar. 
Box was an amazing experience for me um, because it was my first real true experience in in enterprise software. Um, and even then, like I I realized towards the end of my tenure there that I was still a consumer product manager in an enterprise company. Like I, I never fully became an enterprise PM. And I can go into that a little later, but um, at Box, I started uh, as just being a PM on the running the iOS uh, program and then eventually was uh, running the mobile program and then eventually was most of the front end uh, applications for Box. And I really wanted to inject all the consumer DNA I'd learned in gaming and at Xbox and at, at Surface, which was like, let's, let's look at the data. Like what's happening. Let's look at our cohorts. Let's look at engagement. You know, let's make sure that the features we're launching are actually moving the needle for our users. Let's make sure we're adding value. Let's do user testing, right? Um, let's do AB testing. Uh, AB testing almost got me fired at box, but we found a good way to do AB testing in the enterprise which was very novel at the time. Wait, wait, wait. tell me about that. <laughs> wait, yeah. how? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was, it, yeah, it was a fun, fun morning uh, the day after I launched our first A-B test. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I was really set on infusing consumer into enterprise. Um, and it took me a while to figure out that there was enterprise that needed to be infused into my DNA to make this really work meaning that there's a lot of other things, right, that you have to put into your roadmap that don't necessarily move the needle for the end user, which crushed me, right? I only wanted to work on things that would add value to the end user, but you still have to add value to the buyer. And sometimes those things are in conflict and you can't always just default to what's best for the user. Sometimes you have to default to what's best for the buyer too. Um, and those types of decisions were just very hard for me to make. Uh, they became easier and I started building out a framework over time, but um, it definitely went counter to everything <laughs> I really held close uh, and and my deep beliefs on how to build products. So I'm a much better consumer PM than I am an enterprise PM. <laughs> With that experience though, and trying to push the envelope there a little bit and uh, getting uh, maybe almost fired. How do you push back in terms of getting your ideas across or helping people to understand why it's important to do the things you were doing there. How'd you go about that? I think the important thing was I, I learned to be a better listener. I, I held my beliefs really tight because a lot of the time I could prove I was right with data. Yeah. And, um, but, but you can always slice data different ways to make yourself <laughs> look right, <laughs> which is, I guess, the other lesson. And I was really good at doing that. And so if you're really good at slicing data to make yourself seem always correct, um, and people around you aren't as good at pulling data as you are, um, then you get a little bit of an advantage and can operate in certain ways um, that aren't necessarily like the best for learning and growing personally, yeah. and uh, may not be the best way to, to run your team. So it took me a while to, to figure out that like, they're, you know, working with sales and marketing that don't have like the best data reporting systems and may not see immediate ROI on some of the things that they're proposing, but just hearing them out and hearing what the customer, what the buyer, because the customer is debatable who they are, whether it's the end user or the buyer, 
Um, but spending more time with the buyers, spending more time with sales and, and what drives them and, and what they're concerned about and balancing all the, all the different um, goals that everyone has, right? Like ultimately the company wants to keep growing and monetizing, converting, but how you get there, there's many, many different approaches and none of them are wrong. And everyone, every department has a slight variation of how they think it should, you should get there. Um, and I realized after like, man, probably a little too long, like a year and something <laughs> that, that really product has an opportunity to bring everyone to the table and try to create um, a North Star is, is probably like the wrong analogy, but, but try to create a vision of how we're going to all achieve what we want to achieve here without having to default to the lowest common denominator. So um, compromises weren't what we'd all agree on. Compromises was I will default and, you know, put this feature in my roadmap for sales and concede here. But then this next quarter, I'm not putting anything in for sales. And instead, I'm going to actually solve some customer support requests. And then like the next quarter, none of you guys are getting anything because we're <laughs> focusing on like this new feature that we've had on our roadmap that we really want to build. And, and then we have tech debt to tackle. And so it wasn't like, we'll all agree and be happy with that feature. It was, I will make one person really, really happy and everyone else really, really mad and just fluctuate <laughs> and just like rotate through. <laughs> it goes off frequently enough that no one gets too, too mad for too long. What an experience <laughs> to be able to yeah. go through that and, and learn and develop from that. And obviously, like I said, with being able to then talk to founders about these different issues they're having potentially, I want to dive into you going from these experiences early on in this product focus and starting your own company, all these things to starting at NEA, take me through the first few months of being at NEA. Like, How was that adjustment into the other side of the table, getting into the venture side? How did you? How were you learning and growing? I'm curious about that experience early on at NEA for you. Yeah. So my first week was super awkward, um, <laughs> meaning that um, I started on a Tuesday instead of a Monday. And most VC firms all meet together on a Monday, which yeah. means that Tuesday, everyone's out of the office meeting with portfolio companies or entrepreneurs. So I show up on a Tuesday and there's no one there except for like <laughs> the EA and the IT person that are going to you know, hand me my devices and, and give me the lay of the land. And so I open my computer and there's no emails in my inbox. There's no, there's nothing, right? And I'm just like, what am I supposed to do today? <laughs> the company that I've joined, you know, you jump in and they're like, oh man, we needed this product leader six months ago. So here's like the 17,000 things that I've just been waiting for someone to tackle. Yeah. And you're just like day one inundated and your calendar fills up right away and you're trying to ramp up quickly and everyone wants your time and everyone's trying to like influence you to be <laughs> an advocate for what they're trying to push through in the roadmap. And I get to NEA and it's like crickets. I was like, what? <laughs> hmm. Should I just be like emailing founders? Should I be yeah. writing blogs? Like what am I supposed to do today? Um, and, and then I just show up the next day and it was like the same thing. And I'm like, Hmm, I need to figure out like how I'm going to spend my time. Um, and then luckily, like my, I, I have some really great mentors at NEA. And so I asked them if I could shadow them. And so just observing how 
they run meetings, how they meet founders, how they evaluate companies. I signed up to help with a bunch of internal projects and really just wanted to observe and ramp up on the craft for a year. Uh, And then I started feeling much more comfortable bringing things in myself and getting conviction um, and and trying to, to back founders. So it was a very awkward, <laughs> slow start. Um, then it became fascinating because I just decided I was going to treat it like grad school, um, like an yeah. ethnographic study. They just observe everybody and take notes of this like crazy, bizarre culture and industry that very people, very few people have insight into. Um, and then slowly assimilate, right? <laughs> but also try not to lose who I am in the process. Um, and now I'm, I, like we mentioned, just crazy busy and I can't even believe that there was a week of my life where <laughs> I had nothing that was the case. <laughs> zero in my inbox. I'm sure it happened relatively quickly. It, in those early days too, with, with that process, I'm, I'm curious for other people who might be wondering around other emerging managers or people who are just getting an adventure um, for that crowd, what were some of the things you were doing to organize those lessons, takeaways, uh, things you were taking in? Because I imagine it was a lot of different things. And obviously this is a firm that's been around for a while and people have a ton of experience. How are you organizing those those lessons, those takeaways, all those different things? So um, I took notes, like copious amounts of notes. I take, I still take a lot of notes. Um, I wrote down quotes that people would say in meetings, why they would defend an idea, why they would um, reject an idea. I took notes about uh, why I thought certain deals went through and why I thought other deals didn't go through. And then every week would revisit them to see like, what did I learn? Are there patterns? Are there frameworks here? And one thing that struck me was that um, everything that I think you read about or, or see on Twitter about VC this and VC that, like that's all marketing promotional stuff targeted to founders. Like the stuff that's really happening is a lot less glamorous and a lot less yeah. um, scientific than you would think. Uh, and then I realized like there's, there's infinite edge cases in venture. And so a lot of the time you, you're either leaning on your partners for some case studies and benchmarking data, or you're just making a call based on like what you think might happen in the future, which is just absolutely crazy. Um, and uh, yeah, to me, it was just it was shocking that like it really does feel like an apprenticeship, that there's no textbook you can read and say, okay, I know venture. I studied venture. Yep. Even if there was like a major or a degree in venture, it would not prepare you for <laughs> what it's actually like when you have to make a call on, gosh, there's so many decisions that get made frequently, but from that initial investment to like, how do you value this business to how do you allocate follow-ons to just how do you structure the next round? Um, again, it's like infinite edge cases. I feel like I'm still constantly learning. Yeah. And it's something I imagine is never, it never ends. Cause there's always, then there's new industries or like new categories or new things that pop up constantly. So it's just a constant learning. And from, from this as well, I, do you have certain mental models, certain frameworks you you use around decision making? Because you're making decisions in a lot of different ways every week, it seems like. Do you have any of those mental models or anything that you kind of look to or come back to again and again? 
A few things I try to do. Um, one thing I, I've noticed is that like people can be really passionate about some topic at a board or some decision for like amending a charter of a company or, or something. Right. And um, what I like to ask myself is like, will this matter? Right. Like ultimately in like a year from now, will this actually matter? And like, in what circumstances would it matter? And what are the chances? Like, what are the pros and cons in a year or two from now? Like right this minute, everyone's heated or everyone has opinions or everyone has these like deeply held beliefs, but how are we going to think about this in two years from now? Right? Yeah. And so like, that's something I think about often. I think about that when we're talking about valuation for a company, like, are we going to look back on this in two years and be like, you know what? That was actually a great deal. Like right now it seems expensive, but in two years from now, <laughs> you know, if, if things pan out even to be 50% of what we think they're going to be, like, would we feel good about this or not? Or some of these terms or founder voting rights or whatever, like how do, how are we going to feel about this when we look back on it? And that I feel like really separates a lot of the emotion that, that folks drum up in, in some of these decisions. Um, same thing about like, you know, backing founders in two, three years from now, am I going to be excited that I've spent so much time with this person and help them? Um, am I going to want to recommend all my friends to go work here? Am I going to want to, you know, maybe skip a vacation with my family because there's things going on, you know, like yeah, you just think far out in the future of all the different scenarios you'll be in and, and how does that impact the decision you have to make today? And I think that's guided me um, to really f- boil down like what what actually matters and then have those conversations. With that and with what you mentioned around advising founders potentially being obviously one of the things you're, you're doing, working with founders on a day-to-day, weekly, weekly basis, how do you advise them through difficult times, difficult decisions, working with the founders themselves? Because you're on a number of boards. You're also a board observer for a number of companies as well. And obviously there's ups and downs in the startup world. That's just the reality. How do you go about that in terms of advising them or what perspectives do you bring around that? It's the same thing you kind of just mentioned or anything different with with founders? Yeah. Well, I I like to start with the assumption that I don't know more or better than they do first, because they're in this day in and day out. I like get a 30,000 foot view. So I always treat it with like that caveat. Um, And so what I first started to do is again, my lesson from box, just be a good listener. Like what's happening? Lend an an ear, land a shoulder if that's what's needed. Just (laughs) be there, be empathetic, listen, care about the well-being of the founder and their team. Everyone's under a tremendous amount of stress. I mean, if you think about what startups are trying to do is with very little money relative to their competitors, they're trying to like dislodge these giant incumbents and with like less resources, less people, less everything. And just, you know, in the hopes that they just have a clever, a more clever idea, a better product, some edge, and then just ride that. And that is just crazy when you really sit back and think about it. So they are trying to achieve the impossible every single day. And there's so many stressors and there's so many things that come up on a daily basis and they have to be good at everything. People management, sales, marketing, product, recruiting, fundraising, finance. Like, I mean, it's just, (laughs) 
how can someone be so good at all of these things and so detail oriented and yet still have a life outside of work in theory? Um, so just having some empathy, being a good listener, and then finding where you can help, right? Sometimes it's, hey, look, let, you know, if you need help with recruiting. Let me see if I, you know, I can be that in the interview loop and, and take your place. So you only, you get a little bit of a break or, um, you know, maybe we can find you a career coach. Maybe we can help partner you with an advisor in sales that can help clean up some of the processes we have. But just trying to be helpful, trying to lighten the load, trying to pave the way so that they can move quicker and faster and have less friction. Um, but I never assume that I have the answer. Like that, that, that has been very clear to me. <laughs> That's been very clear <laughs> since day one at this job. Uh, don't assume that I know the answer to their problem. With, with that as well then. So are there, are there typical kind of issues, concerns that founders are coming to you with like over and over again? I mean, I know you mentioned the, on the hiring side, are there other things you, you've seen repeatedly that for other founders out there <laughs> trying to avoid some of these mistakes, anything you've seen around that? I think the, the thing I can help most with, um, folks always think I can help most with product. I, I, I can help with product, but, but I don't, uh, I'm not on their product team day in, day out. And I'm not talking to their customers and I'm not looking at their data day in, day out. So like, I actually can't be as helpful in product as people would assume I am. <laughs> yeah. But what I can help is with fundraise strategy because all day I'm either helping us one of our portfolio companies fundraise or I'm hearing about other companies fundraising and I'm evaluating whether or not we want to invest. But like my day in, day out is all around fundraising. So that's actually where I can really help. And founders, the truth is, whether they like it or not, they're always fundraising. Yeah. Like even when you're not fundraising, you're fundraising. And most founders, product-focused founders, like don't love that piece of the job. And so um, that's the one piece that I'm, I'm constantly helping with, right? Like yeah. we just closed around. How do we plan for the next one? Or we're gearing up for the next one. What's our story going to be like? You know, what, who do we target? What types are, what's the right investor profile? What's the right amount that we should raise? What do we think our valuation should be? Um, so... I would say that like most of the time I'm actually helping think through how do we keep this business capitalized so we can continue doing the things that we're doing. With your role, obviously evaluating startups and the potential investment opportunities, I'd love to know more about your process for that. And there's some general things people find out there that's maybe similar across all investors, but I think everyone has a, a different process for that. I would love to hear more about how you go about that and how your process for evaluating startups goes at NEA? Um, gosh, I wish I had this like super sophisticated answer. The truth is I start with uh, industries or areas that I'm personally interested in. That's why I think diversity is actually, side note, super important. <laughs> because um, <yes. laughs> whether investors admit it or not, they're going to have a bias for, for areas that they're interested in, right? right. Like an investor that's a hardcore gamer is going to be really excited to meet with gaming companies. Um I, uh, I'm a parent, I'm a relatively new parent, right? I have a toddler, uh, and I'm expecting a second. And so when I, someone introduces me to a founder tackling, you know, parenting tech or whatever, I'm like, oh yeah, tell me about that. <laughs> like, I, like, tell me all about it. Um, and then if it's an enterprise SaaS, it's like, oh, well, this 
you know, product is targeting designers to make it easier for designers and PMs to collaborate. I'm like, oh yes, please tell me about that. <laughs> um, or HR for headcount planning. I'm like, oh, headcount planning was like the biggest pain in the butt or roadmap planning for the year was just brutal at every company. So like, please tell me about how you're solving this problem. And so the truth is like, I get really excited to meet with startups that are tackling problems that I've either personally faced or I see my portfolio companies struggling with, right? Like one of the things that I've been diving deep on this last year has been tech for finance teams and tech for HR teams because when COVID hit and we were all thinking about like, how do we reduce burn? Where are the areas that we we need visibility into? The finance team was like shooting around spreadsheets with like no context of what any of the rows or cells were. And HR is sending like, you know, lists of people. And I don't know like where they are in the org chart or what they're working on. Like it was mind blowing to me, like how poorly addressed a lot of their needs were. And I'm like, man, how do they not have better software to work with. I was like, we've got to fix this. Um, I need to find companies that are fixing these problems. So it's either problems that I'm personally facing or my friends or companies I'm working with, but I can like directly relate and understand the pain point. Uh, And that's like step one, but it's the biggest step. Like that's what gets me super fired up and excited and to dig into a company. Um, And then from there, it's, you know, obviously team. We're going to work together for a very long time. We're going to spend a lot of time together through ups and downs. And so, like, is there chemistry between us? Um, And then, obviously, business model and market size, because we obviously need to return capital back to our LPs. So I have fiduciary duty to make sure that this this is a good use of capital for for the firm and for our LPs. But it, it really starts with, like, Am I excited? Do I believe in the problem they're solving? Do I believe in the value proposition? And then, like, is this a team I want to work with? With that as well, with you starting that in that place with the certain types of companies you you like or you're excited about, how much of that is these companies coming to you versus you seeking out companies then within spaces you're, you're just ecstatic, ecstatic about? Like, how does that go for you? It's a little bit of both. I, I start getting really excited about a space and then I start poking around and cold outreaching to people. I'll reach out to, you know, my friends that are in HR and I'm like, what are you using? What are some of the workarounds or hacks or have, have you heard of anything that that's solving these problems? And they'll introduce me to companies that they've met with that they think are potentially interesting. And then the word kind of gets out that I'm digging around and looking and and uh, and then I start putting together my research on where I think the pain points are. And then I share that with founders and they tell other founders about it. So I think once you like pick a space and talk to people in that space, the flywheel just kind of gets going and then you get sucked in. So it's, it's a combination of both outreach and people coming to you too. Yeah, um, yeah I would say it's, it's really a combination of both. It's interesting you mentioned that because uh, at Vitalize Venture Group, we're, we're looking at future of work and future of learning uh, moving forward in terms of our our next fund. And to your point, it's like as soon as we put that out there and start telling people more and more, it's amazing how more people are coming to us now in those spaces uh, as we made it clear, like we love these spaces. We want to do more in this. And then more and more stuff comes to us. And then obviously we're actively seeking out as well. So it is fascinating how that goes, especially if you can be known for something or known for being interested in some space in some regard as well. Yeah. And the fascinating thing is if you have that focus... Um, then 
you're gathering a ton of data by, by both meeting with founders that tell you how they view the world evolving, reading the articles because you're trying to get, you know, deeper into the space. And so you, you start going down these like rat holes of, <laughs> of different data and studies. And, and then you just end up becoming really knowledgeable. So when you meet with founders, you're able to ideally give them information that they didn't have or that they can find really helpful. And then if they find you helpful, then they tell other people that you're helpful. Yep. <laughs> and then, then more people reach out. Um, so it is, it is, it is pretty cool how that how that tends to work out. And it's extra cool if it's something that you deeply personally care about. I can't imagine how hard it would be if it's an area that you really have no passion around Ooh. that you're getting sucked in. Yeah, not not great in, in that case. What are some other areas that you are, are excited about now? This is obviously 2021. Uh, what a year it's been in the last year, but you've been at NEA for a number of years now. At this point, what are some areas you're, you're really excited about? Yeah, so I continue to be um, very excited about customer support. Uh, I think that there's we're still far away from making customer support or customer success teams um, revenue drivers. I think we've been talking about that forever and they sit on such valuable data and they have actually an ability to build good relationships with customers that call in upset about something or with a question about something. And we haven't successfully converted them yet into like ambassadors. They're still just problem solvers and like they're still the medicine to the problem, but, but we're not, we haven't yet realized that vision for customer support. Um, I feel the same way I mentioned about finance teams. Yep. Like I think that they're, they've been so transactional in their roles in the past. And I think they should be more strategic and they need to understand more of the context of the business. And, you know, they need to get more plugged in to be able to help the business drive better decisions. And I don't think they're well equipped with the software they have today to do that. Same thing with HR, right? The promise of HR, gosh, we've renamed chief we renamed chief HROs to chief people officers to chief, you know, happiness officer. Like yeah. we, we've, we've been trying to make HR not the like payroll enforcer of rules <laughs> department, right? Yeah. We're trying to make them strategic and help people grow within companies and move within roles and all of these like great things that we think HR could be at the center of and enable. And like, it still hasn't happened yet. This promise of HR being super strategic and being an ally of, of the employee, still not there yet. I still don't think they have the right tools to make that happen. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there as well. Um, product management, obviously, like everything from gathering requirements, roadmaps, user feedback, looking at data, they're all in like a million different systems be great if we could consolidate them somewhere. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity for PMs to be supercharged with products. Same thing, engineering. There's a lot of processes around deployment and testing and even front-end implementation that's still broken. So I, I see a lot of opportunities. I see a lot of things that are broken, but I see a lot of areas <laughs> that that we, we've talked about for so long about like, oh man, wouldn't it be great if it could be this way? And like, we're not... We haven't built those things to make those things happen yet. So I, I still think that those the vision of all those different orgs is legitimate and should come to fruition. We just need to build the right things and processes to make that happen. Why do you think it hasn't happened yet? I mean, to your point of being so much time that you think that these things will be built already. I mean, do you have any inclination on, on why they haven't yet? 
I think there's a lot of reasons. The, the most basic is that, and I, th- I think most people feel this, which is when people tell you, like, you need to be more strategic in your role. And you're like, yeah, with what time? Like, I have a gazillion things on my task list that if I don't get done, I'll get in trouble. Like, things will literally break. And so how am I supposed to get all of this, like, busy work done, right? And then still have time to ideate and be strategic and implement these, like, great aspirational things. And so there's there's that piece, right, where everyone wants to be strategic and you have to be strategic to make these big changes happen, but with what time and what resources and, and everyone's constrained. So that's like the problem I think that's just I hear about constantly. And, and I felt when I was in product, um, there's also people are resistant to change. There's some people in the organization that really want these things to happen. There are other people that may feel threatened by these things happening because it changes the role or it may threaten their expertise, right? Um, So you always have that, I think, just human psychology, fear of change, fear of not being able to adapt to a newer role, right, within within your area of expertise. And then I think that technology wasn't, always there yet. Like we, we needed mobile to happen. We need, uh, for a lot of these, we need data to be in one place. Like the data silos and data going back and forth is actually really hindering a lot of innovation here. But with Snowflake, with everything going in cheaply into like one giant database and then other companies that are building ways to extract that and put that into other applications easily. Like now we're starting to get these infrastructure in place where, the data is more accessible, more consumable in the right place at the right time, then I think like it gives us a better shot. So, and then we need a cloud to happen. Like we need a lot of <laughs> tech things to happen just to get there. And I think we're inching our way there. I think it, it will be possible in the next year to two years to start building some of these things. And, you know, we are getting new generations of, of workers into the workplace that expect things to work differently as well. And so I think as we, bring in a new generation of, of the workforce, again, there'll be more openness to making some of these changes. In your time at NEA in the, the last few years here, how have you seen what venture itself, like in, in terms like the venture capital industry per se, any changes within that that have been noticeable uh, from your perspective in the last four and a half, five years that you've, you've been at NEA? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I got here, everyone's like, well, this industry moves really slowly. And so I was like, Okay. <laughs> and like, yeah, it doesn't move as quickly as like software where we're shipping every week. Yeah. Right. But, um, it moved a lot faster than I expected. So, um, first it's gotten way more diverse when I first joined, um, like gender diversity was a wild thought. <laughs> <laughs> and then now we're like getting down to, well, ethnic diversity and socioeconomic diversity and geographic diversity. And we're, we're talking about diversity on so many dimensions. I'm like, wow, I didn't think that we'd be having this level of conversation so soon, but I'm, I'm very encouraged by it. Um, four years ago, it was like, maybe New York will be an interesting place to invest. Maybe LA will have some startups. And now we're like, New York's a given, LA's a given. <laughs> like now we're talking, you know, Atlanta, Nashville, you know, Boston, Austin. And so I didn't think that was going to happen so quickly either. Um Round sizes are kind of, are absolutely crazy. Like I remember being like, whoa, an $8 million Series A. (laughs) 
that's a lot of like that's a lot of capital like could they even deploy it all in 18 months to two years you know like why raise so much this early <laughs> <laughs> now it's like 20 million dollars series yep. a 30 million dollars um it's mind-boggling but then you have these ipos and these exits when i came into venture everyone was like man it takes so long for these companies to get out and, you know, it's just getting longer and longer and longer. And then all of a sudden, like two years ago, it's like flipped and now everyone's going out. Um, SPACs wasn't a thing two years yeah. ago. Now everything's a SPAC. <laughs> um, just even imagine, remember when the Vision Fund came uh, yep. out from SoftBank mm -hmm. and we were like, holy smokes, this is going to change everything. <laughs> and now no one's talking about it. It's just like it came it was like this biggest threat to venture as we knew it. And then it just, as quickly as it showed up, it vanished and we've all moved on. Point. <laughs> was like, what just happened? <laughs> that was like monumental, all anyone could ever talk about for a year. Yeah. And then poof, no one is talking about it. Um, so it's been wild. It's been, I'm like, what are you guys talking about? This industry moves so fast. It is so crazy. Everything changes every year. No one can predict the year. Like, every, I don't even participate in the, you know, what do you think is going to happen in 2021? Or like, what's your prediction for 2020? It's like comical. Like, no one was talking about stocks uh, at the beginning of last year as being a thing. But it was like the theme of 2020 and 2021. And then COVID, obviously, no one could have seen that happen. But it's like <laughs> we missed the mark every time. <laughs> so I'm just like, this year is going to be crazy. Something we're going to say is going to change the face of venture forever. Maybe it does. And maybe it just disappears in a year and a half from now. Like, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something that makes a splash with a, what was it, a $100 billion fund. I mean, it, it definitely is something worth talking about. But then it's in, it is insane, like how fast that no one's talking at all about that at all. I mean, like literally, I never hear anything. In as much as I'm on Twitter and in the the deep web of tech Twitter, that's never brought up, <laughs> and it's it's kind of insane to think about. Well, everyone's like, "Oh, they lost all the money. Oh, they made all the money. Oh, they lost them." And like, they they've actually done fine, and they're still just there. Yep. It's just no one's talking about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's how society works, uh, which is just the reality of it. And with that all, with the craziness and how fast this has moved, and also then with your life in terms of you have a kid now, you have another kid coming on, on, the, on the way and you mentioned how crazy your schedule is. How do you manage your time, Vanessa? I'm curious. Um, that's a great question. Uh, ruthless prioritization. Uh, you know, I, I plan my week um, in advance and then I ruthlessly reevaluate my calendar. Am I working on the things that have the highest impact? Um, am I making the right time for the right founders? Um, and so I'm constantly reevaluating how I'm spending my time and if it's, if it's the right use of time. Um, I work a lot, but it doesn't, I know it's going to sound super cliche, it doesn't feel like work, right? Because I'll take a call on the weekend with a founder that wants to talk through something. I'll get some documents to review on Saturday. And so like, I, I actually am always working, but I don't, feel like I'm always working. <laughs> and then I look back on like all the things that I've done every week and I'm like, wow, huh, that was that, a lot. That's a ton. <laughs> what does that look like for you in terms of reevaluating? Is it an, an every night you're just like, all right, 
where am I at? Is it every morning? Is it like every couple of days? Like I'm, I'm curious in the details because I'm obsessive about this stuff. Yeah. It's every, so, so, um, Sunday I look at my week and I, I color coordinate my calendar. So I have a color for existing portfolio companies. I have a color for perspective companies. Um, and then I have a color for internal meeting stuff and a color for like ecosystem stuff. So meeting with other investors and lawyers and people that are like supportive and helpful um, in some way, shape or form. And then I look at my, and that gives me a really good, when I look at my calendar, like color wise, I have a glimpse of like, this week is way over rotated on internal stuff. Is there some stuff I can push out? I need to make more room to meet with prospective founders. Like I need to have more gaps. So as things come in, I have space for it. Um, so yeah, so I, I, the color coordinating helps me at like a first glance, make sure that I'm <laughs> allocating the right percentage of time to the different buckets, um, that I focus on. Um, and then when I look at, uh, the color for new prospective founders, the next thing is like, how diverse is it? Yeah. Like, do I have women founders? Do I have founders of underrepresented backgrounds? And if not, then I'm like, I'm doing this wrong. So I start reaching out, like searching Twitter, looking at LinkedIn, just seeing like, who should I cold outreach? Obviously in a space that I'm interested in, obviously in a stage that I would be able to invest in. And then I just reach out just to make sure I have some, I want to have accountability for talking to founders of diverse backgrounds that I could actually fund. Yeah. Um, so I look at that and then... And then I try to leave like a few holes in my calendar for things that might come up. And then throughout the day, inevitably, like something comes up. And I'm like, I need to meet with you this week. And then it's like, okay, where? <laughs> Let's like, we're playing, we're playing Tetris here. Like where, yep. what can I move and all of that stuff. And so, you know, the first thing to move is things in the ecosystem, right? Like they don't yeah. really need my time. Uh, and the last thing I ever move is an existing uh, portfolio company. And that's like, kind of how I structure it. Um, and then at the end of every day, I look at the next day just to make sure that everything looks right. And if there's, if I need a gap or I need some time to make sure that I can catch up on email because I'm behind and I can't finish it all in the evenings, then I, I start creating some spaces like that. But yeah, I look at my calendar like a gazillion times a day. It's probably not healthy. I, I mean, I don't know what other way there is to do it though, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, like in this industry with with the amount of meetings and uh, email and everything else that just pops up. I mean, like how do you, I don't know how anyone else manages it without looking at their calendar constantly. Um, I don't think there is another way necessarily. Yeah. yeah. With it. But I'm always curious about that because I talked to a number, I talked to a lot of different people about this. And in almost every interview, I'm I'm curious about people's schedules because everyone has to find what works for them. But hearing other people's schedules for me at least is helpful to be like, oh, okay, like what am I missing? Or where could I reminders of things as well? And I think it is just being on top of it, being ahead of things is, is the most important. But also there all has to be some some system of prioritization within your week. There has to be. Um, and like, I love the color coding and understanding like, oh yeah, like our portfolio coverage that that's not going to get pushed or that's the last thing to get pushed versus other things. And I think that's always been helpful for me as well. And looking at my day of like, which things are the, I can't move yet. <laughs> and uh, you know, other things are easily more adjustable, uh, even though in our head sometimes we're like, oh, I can't move that. But a lot of times you can reschedule anything. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it's funny because people 
people re- reprioritize me too. So yeah. <laughs> like halfway through my day, you know, today someone's like, oh, I have a customer call. I can't meet now. Like, can we reschedule for next week? I'm like, okay, I have that, that gap open. And I think the one thing I've learned to do is, well, if it's too soon from now, then I can't really move something into that slot. So let's use that time context shift into either email or brainstorming or reading. Yeah. And that that's actually been hard for me. Like I'll see a gap in my calendar and I'm like, okay, I'm going to dedicate that time to read XYZ or to clear out my email. And then when that block comes along, I'm like, or I could make like a snack mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. I could like, <laughs> <Yep>. browse Twitter. <laughs> you know, like I don't feel like doing that thing I should be doing with this like one moment in time I didn't expect to have free. Yeah. It- <laughs> um, but I constantly work on the discipline on that one. It's like, yeah, past me told me that was a good idea, but current me says no to this. <laughs> and that happens constantly throughout the day. It's like all these things I schedule weeks ago or a week ago. And then it's like, you get to that point, you're like, yeah, well now what should this thing be done? Because now other, you know, a thousand other things where there's a whole idea of like task switching from deep work by Cal Newport has this like, residue that kind of remains from the last task so it's not that easy to just switch to another thing it's just something that remains from the last thing and so it's always difficult to to switch but in an industry like this with you know somebody you could be talking a lot of different founders from one call to the next so you're constantly kind of switching which is interesting that's actually i would say that that's been the hardest thing to get used to because in product yeah i'll talk to engineers i'll talk to sales i'll talk to marketing but it's always around like the same context or we're talking about the launch or we're talking about a customer issue and right so you're talking to a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives but it's around the same topic yeah. it's at least around the same domain but i'll go from like you know talking to a founder about menstruation products yeah. to then talking to a founder about like this you know memory management <laughs> deep infrastructure company and like and it'll be like from one call to the next. And I'm like, my brain, I just need like a few minutes to, <laughs> to like make this show. These are two very, very different topics. Yeah, it's like if, if um, they only knew what you just talked about for the last half hour, hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And and so, and then you switch to like a board meeting, oh, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh. So the switch for me at the end of every day, I felt, you know, really amazed by all the things that you got to cover in a day, but also just like really tired yeah. in product that could work till like 10 or 11 o'clock at night and no sweat. Yeah. And venture by like six, I, my brain just like, sh- <laughs> just like shuts off. It's like, sorry, you're not a lot of context shift. Not one more time today. You are done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so it's a real thing in this industry that I don't think most people talk about enough. Yeah. It's like, you don't get time to get into flow. Like there's no like flow states. Because they're not, there's no there's not the same as when you're creating and doing that. It's just a totally different mindset. So it is like tough to figure out. Because I, I mean, think back to like when I was um, in different roles where I would be more so creating around writing more often or whatever it may be. It was like I had hours of time to spend on like this one kind of task, and you don't feel as tired. <laughs> then you just get in the zone. Right. It's weird. It is. It is. The, yeah. I, I was I was tracked up like maybe it's just me because I see these people co- like go from one conference room to the next conference room and they don't miss a beat. And like I go from one conference room, I go to the kitchen, drink a glass of water, <laughs> like okay, next one. Yeah. Because uh, I just can't shift that quickly and be super focused on like the next topic with a clean slate. Like I still stop like most of the time I'm still thinking about wrapping up my thoughts on the last meeting I had. And so I, <laughs> I actually started booking meetings to be 45 minutes to give myself 
15 minutes between them to like walk around, finish my thoughts, digest like the conversation, write like what my next steps are, just kind of like mentally close that chapter. Um, Because otherwise I found myself not fully focused on the next meeting. Yeah, I actually think that's probably what uh, I just talked to Charlie O'Donnell from uh, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. And uh, that was a similar thing. I think his are 45 minutes. So I think he does the same thing. He didn't actually mention that, but I'm pretty sure he does based on that time frame, uh, which makes sense. I mean, to have that time to switch and kind of mentally like shift, I think I find myself needing that same thing. But um, I'm always obsessed about those things. How how you work is, is, is interesting because, you know, that's the time we devote to these things that we want to accomplish in our lives. And so figuring out how to do them better is worthwhile, especially when there's other things outside of work, which is something there is always. So it's interesting thing to manage. And I always want to make sure that like every founder I meet with or every person not even founder, every person that I meet with, I want to be able to give them like the same attention and care and thoughtfulness, regardless of like where they fell on my calendar that day. And so I constantly like, what is the user experience I'm providing this person when they're interacting with me? And like, what would my KPIs be on this meeting? Right. And what would their MPS of this be? And I think about that all the time, like beginning and end of every meeting, like, did I help this person? Was I thoughtful? Was I engaged? Um, and I, I care a lot about that because I think it's so easy to be transactional in this business. Just be like, okay, next, yeah. next, next. And like not treat people like people. Yeah. Um, I, I really don't want to ever fall into that trap. Yes. That's a great thing. Uh, you mentioned, I think we should leave it with that. <laughs> Vanessa, where can people go to connect with you, uh, learn more about what you're doing uh, if they want to as well? Yeah. So my DMs are open on Twitter. Uh, reach out to me there. I'm pretty terrible on LinkedIn. So Twitter is probably easier uh, just because LinkedIn is... It's gotten to that point. Uh, yeah. And I'm happy to chat and I love doing office hours too. So I, I sometimes open up my calendar and let people just book 30 minutes and, and chat through ways that can be helpful. Perfect. Vanessa, thank you so much for the time today. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.